how much do you play? A big part of play is being in the moment and using your imagination. When you adopt a playmaker mindset, it lowers the stakes and raises your game. How can we use this mindset to innovate in the equipment finance industry? We will explore that question and more in today's podcast, which is part of a series in partnership with Tomorrow's Own. Today, Deborah Rubin interviews Jeff Rogers, a sought-after speaker, design thinking facilitator, and author of the bestseller, The Playmaker Mindset, a radically fun way to build a culture of teamwork and instant innovation. Jeff is also owner of the first original improv school in the country, and his corporate clients include Fortune 500 companies across all industry verticals. And of course, many of you know Deborah Rubin, who is founder and CEO of Tomorrow Zone, a consulting firm inspiring both futuristic thinking and action to innovate in equipment finance and beyond. Tomorrow Zone works with leaders and teams who want to leverage technology to drive innovation, enhance customer experience, and grow their businesses. If you want to quickly comprehend the current state of your processes and technology to reveal the big picture, and reimagine for the future while uncovering non-obvious profit potential and open new growth options for your business, Tomorrow Zone can help. If you feel stuck in the status quo and need a fresh perspective, Tomorrow Zone can be a strategic thought partner to help you see around corners and create short-term wins with long-term scalability in mind. Learn more at www.tomorrowzone.io. Before Deb and Jeff begin, I want to tell you about Monitor Suite, the content subscription service equipped for the equipment finance industry. Monitor Suite has been a key project my team has been working on that features high quality streaming series and the very first equipment finance documentary series. Monitor Suite members have 24-7 access to our entire library of in-depth data reports dating back to 1992, videos, members-only live stream events, exclusive articles, and much more. For more information, visit monitordaily.com slash suite. Monitor Suite was a project that I started during my time in cohort two of Stripe's leadership program, which just so happens to be today's podcast sponsor. Stripe's is the leadership development program for the equipment finance industry. This 10-month program launches with a three-day intensive transformational program and also includes master talks and master workshops from notable industry and leadership experts, working cohort groups with other industry professionals, outcome-driven development sessions, and much more. Stripes has been a phenomenal experience for me, and I encourage you to learn more about the program by visiting stripesleadership.com. I'm here with Jeff Rogers, great friend, and I've been really exploring the human side of innovation from all different perspectives. And I thought that Jeff would bring a really unique perspective because he is looking at innovation at the intersection of improvisation and design thinking. And so I'm not gonna say much more about that. Let's just dive in. You ready for this, Jeff? I'm, I'm ready. Right. I've got all of my answers on either side of the camera. I've written everything out. Go ahead, whatever question. I'm just right. I wanted to just kind of start with a little bit of an introduction of you. I describe myself as an improvisation evangelist. And the reason for that is because I came up through improvisation at a very famous theater called The Second City in Chicago. And I got to work with a lot of really well-known comedians where Improvisation is used for comedy as folks like Steve Carell, Stephen Colbert, Tina Fey. Um, I got to work with 
Jim Belushi, Bonnie Hunt, uh, I mean, the voice of Homer Simpson, a lot of really crazy, funny people and just delightful human beings. And for me, improvisation was a gateway. It was a, <laughs> improv was a gateway drug to innovation because I always felt that all of these tools that we use in improvisation can be applied pretty much all over the place. So what I do now is I help companies who are trying to figure out how to really install a culture of innovation and are a little bit stuck. They're a little bit unsure of how to do that. They don't want to do a massive pivot right, right out of the gate and not understand how to do it or feel secure about it. I'm the pre- massive shift, mini shift. I come in and I help them work with how that how they're going to create, collaborate, and communicate in order to reach that stage of innovation where they're really comfortable now living in that space of being an innovative company. And for most of the clients that I work with across a lot of different verticals, they really get a lot out of it because it's easy and yet it's laying the groundwork for the big work that's going to come down the road. Awesome. That is so important. And I run into companies that have that sort of a need all the time. I mean, I don't think anybody debates the need to innovate. It's kind of a yeah. given these days. It is, but you hear that term and you don't know how to apply it. What does it mean? You know, and what does it mean to my company? What does it mean to my team? What does it mean to my group? What does it mean to me in my position? So it has so many meetings. And I think a lot of people are trying to just get to one meeting and apply it all across the board. And honestly, it just doesn't work like that. At least I don't think so. And um, my goal is to try and help people feel confident about having the meanings that they need for innovation in the situations that are appropriate for those meanings. So that, that brings up a question, Jeff. How do you define innovation because you talked about meanings plural sure. that's interesting yeah i think a lot of people think about innovation as a number of different things they think about it as creativity they think about it as imagination they think about it as as evolutionary or revolutionary and in part they're all correct it is all of those things at specific times so you have to have a process that identifies where you are and which one to apply at that time. So imagination is that idea of anything is possible. Anything. Nothing is impossible with imagination. You can do anything. The reality, though, is that's not what innovation is. You need your imagination in order to feed your creativity, which is the ability to think of things that are possible, right? So we've gone from the anything is possible, right? to creativity, which is the things that can be applied, right? That might be actually feasible, that you could actually do, and then move from there to innovation and apply it to that area that you're working. Okay, we can do these things. How might we do them in this area for this specific task, whether it's a strategy, a product, some sort of customer service, something along those lines. So it's really about distilling it into what area that you're utilizing it. That's how I think of innovation is it's the applied creativity. Awesome. I love that. I wanted to just step back a little bit because I just read your book 
recently. And that was you. I, that was me. Yes, yes, uh, yeah. Your your biggest fan. But I got so much out of it, and so it's called the Playmaker Mindset: A Radically Fun Way to Build the Culture of Teamwork and Instant Innovation. Instant innovation is pretty appealing, <laughs> and why can't we just wave a magic wand? Bam! We have innovation. Is that what it means? I was wondering because in my consulting work, I come across leaders all the time who are just struggling with this. We know we need to innovate. We got the message, but now what do we do? We've got right. all these people that have for years been operating and somewhat silo mentality and now we're asking them to think different but they're having trouble thinking different and we're telling them go come up with creative ideas go innovate but they're not really bringing us the breakthroughs that we're looking for and so I just wonder what does it take so can you share a bit about what you talk about yeah, absolutely. So what you're describing, first off, if you're listening to this or watching this and you're thinking, oh yeah, this is who I am. You are so not alone in that feeling of I'm my people aren't responding or I'm, I don't understand why we're not getting more innovative. That is so common in, in a lot of companies and a lot of organizations. And they're also a little afraid to admit that's because that's a little bit of vulnerability there to say, we don't have this part figured out yet. So what I try and do is I try and really lower, <laughs> I try and lower people's expectations. First off, I'm not that good at this. So let's lower your expectations about what's going to come in. But I, I want to lower the stakes. That's step number one. With Playmaker Mindset, the idea is that you you want people to be in that same space they are, that same mental space as when they play. Because when we play, we absolutely lower the stakes and that enables us to raise our game. When we're nervous, when we're struggling, right? Our whole field of vision narrows, right? That's our lizard brain coming in and saying, just focus on this one problem. And the reality is with creativity, we wanna be as open as possible to see all the different ways that things, ideas from our knowledge, from our experience that we could pull together in order to form a new idea or something that's creative, imaginative. And then we're going to polish it up to make it innovative, right? Because like I said before, it's not just about being creative. You also then have to put it through a process so it's applicable in a situation where you want something to take a step forward, to move in a new or further in the direction that you're aiming. Google talks about this as well in terms of psychological safety. You have to create the environment in which people feel safe enough to offer ideas, that's a hard thing to do, especially when it's been do your task, do your task. Okay, what have you? What creative thing do you have? Well, creativity is very personal. So you have to create a space where somebody can offer an idea that may be silly, may be unhelpful, because it's never the first idea when a group is coming together with ideas, right? It's always the fifth or sixth one that they have that people are like, oh, wait a minute, wow, that's something. Or it's a combination of ideas. So you got to lower the stakes about the ideas. Go for quantity instead of quality. And that immediately, when I do a workshop and I do a game, an exercise, an improv exercise, people are like, what is this? Improv? I don't know how to improvise. If you've ever been a kid, and most of us have, you know how to improvise. You just do because it's about playing. It's about being in the moment. When a kid comes up to another kid, they come up and say, do you want to play? And the other one says, 
yeah, okay, let's go play. They don't go, okay, hold on a minute. I've got a list of needs that I'm going to have to have happen. And I want to make sure that we have these goals about our play together. No, they go and play. They go explore. They fail. They learn. They grow. That's what needs to happen at the very beginning of the process when you're in that company. You want to create that space. Okay, we're going to try some things. They all will not work. But I think if we do this the right way, we are going to get a couple that really do work. But we don't have to worry about that because those will present themselves. Those will be there when we get done. And the, so that's the, really the first thing is create that space that people can offer ideas and they feel safe about doing it. I would also say to get out of a reactive mindset where you're reacting to somebody, right? Or a situation or a need. Instead, respond to that need, situation, or action. And the difference is in reaction, you're in flow of whatever it is the situation is, as opposed to, I know our core, I know what we do, I know our vision and values, and we're gonna respond from that space as opposed to from a space of, okay, we just need to get this done real quick. We need to put a Band-Aid on this cut. It's okay. That's certainly a reaction. The response might be, actually, let's clean it out. Let's make sure there's no other things in there. Let's put some Neosporin on there. And then let's put a Band-Aid on that, if that's the appropriate thing to put on there. Or maybe we could put a little bit of that spray that acts as a little Band-Aid, right? There's different ways to go about it. But if you're in a, a lowered stake environment, you're able to think a little bit more clearly and respond in a way that you feel good about. And that allows you to come up with the best solutions that'll really work. So that's a little bit about what playmaker mindset is. For anybody who's played any sports, and I was not great at sports, but I liked them. <laughs> I wasn't really good at them. But the one thing I had a baseball coach who taught me, it doesn't matter what sport it is. If your feet are shoulder width apart, your knees are a little bent, you'll be able to go wherever you need to go pretty quickly. But what I took from that was the idea of a readiness sensibility. You're ready. You're in a state of readiness to be able to go wherever you want to go. And when you're playing, that's where you are because you don't know what's going to come up next. You're playing, so you're just ready. If people can get to that state, then they can leapfrog into some really great creative ideas and innovation and things that'll come from that state. It's really interesting because you think about the world that we're in today and so many different disrupting scenarios are thrown at us all the time. And we're not just talking about technology-driven disruption, but war in Europe and the economy and this new regulation. And, oh, now our key person has quit. There's just stuff all the time. I wonder, like, how does this playmaker mindset or improvisation, like, how could those skills help companies in in dealing with those things the word readiness just like really sparked my curiosity so yeah curious what well, you have to say about that so when we talk about improvisation we talk about being in the moment there's three key pillars to improvisation I, and i'm gonna give you the keys to improv right now you'll be able to go up on stage at second city or go over to snl saturday night live right after i'm done with these three keys basically listening right that's number one really deep listening number two you want to adapt you have to adapt to what's real in the moment and being in the moment is what readiness is all about that means you're not 
preconceiving or pre-concluding what outcomes there are going to be. Instead, you're in the moment creating the outcome that you want. And that means that you're coming from a place of responding instead of reacting. So you're shaping that outcome that you really want in your response. And then the final thing is yes and. Now, most people have heard about this in terms of it's been bandied about certainly for the last decade in the utilization of yes and. The reality is most people don't understand what yes and means. And it's because it seems so simple. But the reality is, oh, yes and means I have to say yes to whatever the other person is saying. Not really. You have to agree that they have the right to say it. So that's what that yes is acceptance. You accept that they have that right to that opinion. And that can work in a lot of different areas, especially family gatherings. You have the, the ability to accept that is the yes. That's the acceptance. The and is building a bridge from where you are to where they are. So that somewhere you can connect and get to that next topic or that next idea or that next thing that you need to do as a team. So it has team bonding built into the process of improvisation. And if you take those three things, listening really deeply with empathy, adapting in the moment to what's actually happening, not your framework of what's happening, right? But what's actually happening. And then you accept what other people believe is happening and try and build a bridge so you can communicate together. Honestly, those are three key life tools that you can apply anywhere. And when we teach improvisation, we use it not just as a tool for stage or for comedy. We teach improvisation for life. Because, listen, we're all improvising all the time. It doesn't matter if you've got a script in front of you. Look, I started out as an actor. I've worked with scripts. You don't know what the other person is going to respond or how they're going to respond. Even though you're both looking at a script, the words are written for you. And yet they might have a little bit of something different up their sleeve. So you have to be right there with them in order to react to that. We're all improvising all the time. It's just when you really inhabit that space of understanding what you're doing and why you're doing it, now you can wield it as a power as opposed to being buffeted around in the storm of it. We got I very, love philo that. very oh, so, philosophical there. I didn't yeah, mean to go so yeah, totally, but no, but okay. So improv actually could be like your superpower in business. And 100%. in your book, you talk about it as a meta skill. So I was curious, what exactly does that mean? First of all, what is a meta skill? In I think most of us go through life with a, a frame of reference, right? It's a handed down frame of reference. Viola Spolin, who started the current wave of improvisation, there was improv back in Greek theater and Commedia dell'arte back in Italy and the Renaissance and everything. Viola Spolin created improvisation games and exercises for children of immigrants here in Chicago. And they couldn't speak to each other. They didn't know each other's languages. So she created these games that they could play, that they could take on these characters and express themselves without even being able to use the same language. To be able to do that and understand what the other person is saying without understanding the words they're using, that's a very deep level of listening and paying attention to the other person. That's empathy. There is no scenario where empathy is not a boon to what you're doing. Sales, empathy. 
if you can understand your customer, your client's needs, you're done. Close the door. That sale is made. You can walk away because they feel like you get them. HR is all about empathy, is understanding both sides of that equation from the very simplified worker and management type of scenario. But all of those different interactions, it is based on understanding. And empathy is key for all of that. Um so I think as a meta skill, it can be applied in every scenario. Communication, yes-anding somebody, accepting what they're saying and trying to build a bridge to them. Who isn't for that? Who isn't? That's the very heart of negotiation. And that's used every single day in business. And then finally, adapting to what's real and in the moment. The reason forecasters get things wrong is because they're using the frame of reference that has been handed down to them and doesn't allow them to see what's actually happening in the field, in the moment. You have to be able to understand that, you know, your past is relevant, but it shouldn't be the only lens you use to study the situation that you're in right now. Poland came up with the idea of improvisation and that it is the idea of being spontaneous in the moment that you were able to throw off your handed down frame of reference and see things as they, as it actually is and, or as they actually are. And if you can get into that zone more often than that in itself is a superpower, right? To be able to recognize what's real and to be able to, to be able to leverage that. Most of us go through life with a, the biases that we were given and then the biases that we create recency bias, all of those biases that, that complicate our understanding of what's real. Improvisation trains you to think in the moment, to be present in the moment. So those biases has less of an effect, not no effect. Although I have met a couple of improvisers who literally, I swear they're existing on a different plane. I, very quickly, side story. I saw an improviser come off stage one time. He comes around to the bar and he sits there and he opens a can of beer and he starts drinking. Here's the thing though. There was no can of beer. He wasn't drinking anything. He was miming the whole thing because he was so in the moment that he believed that existed for himself. That's a rare state of kind of being in the moment. But for most of us, <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> it can it can put us in that place of okay, it, it's like shaking it off real fast, right? It's okay. What's real here? What's actually happening? What do, what's going on right now? If you could do that you tend to get into a much better space of understanding, A, what's happening, but being able to forecast what's going to come out of that. And I think that's a key element of really being successful in business as well. Yeah, especially with the complex challenges that we have today. And you got me thinking about just the notion of throwing off the preconceived ideas of the past. And that's a big trap. I think that I see a lot of folks fall into, especially in the work that I do with folks where we're looking at what's the current state of your people process technology situation. And then what's the roadmap to get you to your desired future in order to envision that future, we have to be willing to be honest about where we're at, but not be constrained by the solutions of the past. Mm-hmm. And that's really hard to get past because there's always this, this temptation or this bias to start with your, your favorite solution first. That's why it's never <laughs> the first idea, right? Yeah. So I, there's so much, there's so much gold here. So one thing that, that you shared with me previously that I think is really interesting because you're talking about the process of solutioning 
with empathy. And that kind of crosses the line into the processes that you were talking about that are also really important for innovation, design thinking. And I know you've been doing courses with MIT and Harvard and Stanford and whatnot. What are you learning about design thinking and what's possible for leaders and professionals at the intersection of improv and design thinking? So I have been taking these courses and it's fascinating, right? MIT absolutely takes a little bit more of an engineering sort of take on innovation and design thinking. Stanford is a much more, I would say, I mean, they really developed the whole human-centered design mindset. And so they really take that. And Harvard has been fascinating combination of those, but really focusing on how we think like the way we think of things, which has been really very cool. Once we can get past that immediate sort of gap, that that courage gap, right? Once we step over that, we're in that space of vulnerability. It's at that point that we really need to apply these different modalities of thinking. And all of them are really there to shake you out of your frame of reference. So things like, how would this work in an alternate world, in an adjacent or a non-adjacent vertical or industry? What are they doing over here? Like when an airline goes to a spa to understand what the level of service is at a spa and how they talk to people, how they get them in that state of relaxation to understand that better so they can bring that back And incorporate some of those elements so that when they have irate passengers who need to get from here to there, they can start utilizing some of that processing and some of that ideation. Those types of things, alternate worlds, anything to get you to reframe a little bit is going to allow you to start tapping into different ideas that are going to pop up. And that's really been one of the biggest things I've taken away from these classes and where improvisation does that is that we do that on a much simpler level, on a very fun and experiential level. So when I first got trained on design thinking, I I immediately saw that there was a connection to improv. A, they accept all of the ideas. It's a non-judgmental environment and you need that for improv to create things on stage. To set the stage for people, imagine walking out in front of an audience of 500 people You have no idea what you're going to say. You have no script. You have no set. You ask for a suggestion from the audience that you can make something up on the spot that they have paid money to see. A little bit of pressure, right? Except you know how to improvise. Some of the exercises that you've done that will allow you to tap into that and come up with some level of gold. It's the same thing for these exercises. We want to get people to feel comfortable. There's one thing I do, a riddle, and just for fun. Yeah, Marge and Margie were born on the same day, the same hour, the same minute, in the same hospital to the same parents. But they're not twins. What are they? Now, just that, right there, Deborah, you just did exactly what everybody does. Is You took it in, and then you were like, Let me think on this. And you looked up, which by the way, when we look up, here's a little personal reading thing. When we look up, we're looking to the heavens and it's an ideations phase. When we look down, it's we're coming up with a story or maybe a fabrication. I won't say lie, 
But so all of our ideas tend to be up when we look up and I won't make it go through it, but what you're going through right now is the process of improvisation. You're searching your experience and memory for what makes sense for the riddle that I just sent out. And so the answer to that, unless you have it, do you have it? I got nothing. That's okay. <laughs> about, uh, you know, some You're people, not surprised uh, either, are you? No, no about three to, four, three to five percent of people get it. And mostly because they have kids and the, the kid has done this riddle to them. And I didn't get it when my daughter did it to me. It's because they were triplets. And so as soon as we hear that, our frame of reference immediately shifts. Oh, of course. And I knew that, but why couldn't we tap into that? Mainly because we're doing it as a mental puzzle and we're not experiencing it with our whole body. Our muscles have memories that we don't tap into enough in our creative process. Improvisation helps us tap into that a little bit. We're not doing somersaults or anything, but we're doing exercises that start bringing us in physically as well and combining everything, body and mind. So now we're more open to those ideas and thinking a little bit differently. And we're able to start, oh, what if we did this? And what if we did this? That comes a lot more freely. I found in a lot of the design thinking work that I did, it was very much a mental game. And about three to 5% were able to do it immediately, right? That's where they play really strongly. But for a lot of us, it felt like I need a bridge to get to there. I need something to get me to that space. I can play there once I'm there, but I need that bridge. And that's where improv comes in for me is those exercises help everybody get there to that creative space, to that fun space, that space of constant readiness. And now they're able to access knowledge, experience, and start throwing different ingredients into that creative mix. I love that. That's something that I've been really intrigued by in the work that I'm doing as well. When we're working with people, we do visual facilitation. And it used to be in person and there was a little more physical activity. You're getting up, you're going to the whiteboard, you're sticking the stickies on the wall and whatever. But now we're doing it in the digital space, but we still have that that physical touch where we're actually interacting with the images and the data and the concepts and the ideas that we're playing with Yeah, as we're hearing. And so there's still a little bit of that. I I'm wondering, like, are you looking into any of the effect on your brain that's happening? Oh, yes, actually. And two things. One, I've seen the way you've done that. And I've actually experienced it a little bit when you shared that with us and did a couple of examples. It's brilliant. The way you do it and walk through it, I really admire because it does, in a digital space, allows you to tap into some of the things that we're talking about. They did an MRI on a jazz musician as he was playing the piano. And so what they did was play this piece of music as it's written. So he did that. All right, now improvise off of that. And what happened is what they found, all these different areas of the brain lit up from sight, sound, memory, and smell, smell, the area of smell, because we store ideas and memories all over our brain. So they went into the smell thing and they thought, why smell? And he tried to connect it. And he said, when I was a kid, I would go over to my grandma's house and she wouldn't allow us to have any of the fresh baked cookies until I did my piano lesson. And when I did my piano lesson, she would have on some music and sometimes I would play what they were doing and I would go off of there. So it anchored a memory of freestyling in jazz with the smell of the cookies that his grandmother had just taken. So that's where that little memory was stored. But he was tapping into that, if that's the one. But 
the idea that he could recall that, it absolutely encompasses way more of your brain to improvise. And once you do that, once you've activated and opened up your brain in that way, it's open for everything else. It doesn't just, okay, go, and then close up real quick. It's like now that's open and you're able to tap into that. Yeah, it's like the difference. It's like what you were saying earlier, the difference between an open mind that's ready to create and innovate and a narrow mind that's stuck in the frameworks of the past. Yeah, yeah. And I think that the big part about that for me is to make that part of it as fun as possible. Because if people are having fun, and this is the data and this goes back for 50, 75 years, but we also intrinsically know it. If we have a teacher who's fun, we're more engaged. If we're having fun with something, we're enjoying it. There's all the chemicals that are released, right? Oxytocin and all of these things in the brain and we're engaged. That happens here as well. So the improv makes it fun, makes it easy because we all know how to play and it builds that bridge to opening everything up so that everybody can play on the same level or in the way that they want to play it. They can respond and play in their way. But it's everybody's playing at the top of their game as opposed to feeling insecure or vulnerable or something along those lines. It needs to be as inclusive as possible. And so that's a big part of allowing people to play in the way that they play. Awesome. Do you have time for one more question? 100%. Okay, awesome. So... I could talk this all day. Are you really? Kidding? Yeah, we should just keep going. I have several. I have like at least two or three more juicy questions if you're up for it. Absolutely. Okay, yeah. let's do it. So we're improvising right now. So <laughs> apply right away. You're talking about play a lot. And then that kind of seems like the opposite of, of work. And how do you help like a business leader to embrace these kinds of concepts yeah. so that they could get results from it. So I do change the language a little bit because most people think the same thing, that play is the opposite of work. It's not. The opposite of play is depression. So it is very much not the same thing. You can go into work and have an incredibly great day where you are engaged, you are really hitting on all levels. You are enjoying it. People are attracted to you because you're really bringing your A game. That is no different than playing, right? Than that sense of play. It is the exact same thing. What I try and do is ask them, what feeling do you want your employees to have when they're thinking about coming into work? Do you want them to be excited and motivated? Or do you want them to be depressed and regretful. Most of them choose excited and motivated. Some of them take longer with the decision that I'm comfortable with, but there's that old story. And I don't know if it's true, but I like it. So I repeat it is that Ford was walking down the assembly line one time and he saw a worker who was smiling and immediately fired him because he was having fun at work. And it's one of those apocryphal stories or allegorical stories that are all about the idea of what are we doing with our work-life balance? Why are we trying to balance that, by the way? I don't believe in the work-life balance. We talk about authenticity. If we want to be authentic, we have to be authentic the entire time of our waking hours. And to be really authentic, boy, wouldn't it be great to find happiness and joy at work as well and be inspired by what we do? And I honestly think the next generation is seeking that out. 
And they're trying to look for that alignment between the vision and values of the companies that they work for and their own personal vision and values. And why am I investing 8, 10, 12 hours, 18 hours a day with this place when it doesn't reflect who I am? I no longer have the need for stuff. I These kids can live so small, right? And I say these kids, the, younger, the next generation, and it's not, I'm not putting them down in any way. I think they've figured out a lot of things very quickly at a very young age. And they are now bringing that into the workspace and companies that don't figure that out, they're going to, they're going to be in a lot of trouble going forward. So I, and I really do concentrate on the employee. If you're investing in the employee, if you're making their life, and I don't mean with ping pong tables and extra snacks in the drawer about really identifying vision and values and living them as a company, I think you find a lot more people are going to be invested in that than necessarily what's what's on their paycheck at the end of the week. And in fact, studies bear that out. Yeah, and I think there are people from all generations that are rethinking those things right now, it's, given it's what true. we've just been through over the last few years. We're, we're all seeking meaning and making the most of all the days that we have. I don't, I want the work that I'm doing to be fun. Otherwise, we need to find something else to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we say fun. And by fun, we mean challenging, right? We mean mm-hmm. engaging. We don't necessarily mean it needs to be easy and we're all drinking umbrella drinks. We want to work at that nexus of what we know how to do and what's challenging to us. To be there figuring stuff out, that when they've done measurements of happiness, that's what's come up as the premier item mm-hmm. is to keep on working at that level and to keep on existing and exploring at that level. Mm-hmm. It can be done at work. That can absolutely be a part of your everyday. It's just you need to be in the role to do that. Absolutely. So speaking of every day, I was wondering, this is a question that I ask everyone and just curious, what would you say that leaders could do today to shape their tomorrow? Without a doubt, the first thing is uh, take care of your employees. Understand what your internal customer needs first. Because if you can figure that out, then you're bulletproof. They will go out and become these ambassadors that are doing everything for the company. If they believe in what the company is doing and why they're doing it, then why would they go anywhere else? Why would anybody go anywhere else? That's what everyone is searching for. Understand what your employees want. You're not going to get there for everybody all the time but you're really going to identify how to get there for a good majority. You want more profits. You want more sales. You want more revenue. You want a better core team. You want leadership attributes. You want man do that. All of those things will start figuring themselves out. It's not as magical as that, but that is, that's the first block of the whole foundation that you're putting together. That's awesome. I just want to thank you, Jeff, for joining me for this episode. So much to think about. And it's just fascinating to see what we can find at the intersection of improvisation and design thinking. A lot of awesome. So thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me, Deb. I'm a huge fan of all the work you do. So I'm flattered to be here. (laughs) Thank you. And we'll wrap with that. I really enjoyed Deb and Jeff's conversation today, and I hope that you did too. I wanted to highlight a few of my biggest takeaways from their conversation. 
First, innovation is applied creativity and it's dependent upon imagination, evolution, and revolution. When you use your imagination, anything is possible and nothing is impossible. What problems would you be able to solve in your business if you really used your imagination to fuel your creativity? Second, to create a space where team members feel comfortable using their imaginations and creativity, it's vital to create a space where silly or unhelpful ideas are welcomed and encouraged. How can you create an environment like this at your company? Finally, the three keys to improv, which are listen, adapt, and yes and, can help us avoid disruption. This all begins by listening with empathy and then adapting to reality in the moment and accepting others' right to have an opinion and then building a bridge between you and the other person through communication and connecting ideas. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. We'll see you next week.